Good afternoon or good morning, depending on where you're watching this. My name is Ilya Shapiro. I'm the Director of Constitutional Studies, the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute. And welcome to our program on coronavirus and the Constitution. Uh, I'm here uh, wearing my, my Easter uh, uh, shirt uh, and I, I self uh, cut my hair this morning. So adapting uh, to the pandemic, uh, might've seen that on, on Twitter. Hopefully it turned out okay. Uh, now, we're not here to debate uh, the wisdom of any given policy that either President Trump or uh, state governors and mayors have uh, put in, how you balance the nation's economic health with the public health, whether the damage that's uh, so-called self-inflicted from shutdowns is greater than what the virus would impose. Uh, here, we're looking at legal and constitutional questions. Uh, regardless of what should be done, where do they get the power to do it? And who should be uh, doing uh, the various things that have been proposed, uh, whether to shut down, reopen, or anything else. So under our constitution, the federal government is one of enumerated, listed, and therefore, at least in theory, not always observed in practice, limited powers. That means there is no general power to do whatever the president or the secretary of health and human services uh, wants to address the pandemic. Uh, there are certain federal programs that are in place. So the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA uh, are involved in all sorts of different things uh, with regard to uh, producing uh, medicines, approving uh, testing and uh, vaccines, things like that. Uh, and they've been uh, criticized for uh, inadequately uh, doing their jobs. But anyway, those are certain federal functions. As far as the president is concerned, there are certain uh, emergency authorities when uh, he declares a, a state of national emergency, as he did uh, for the wall uh, a year ago. Uh, that doesn't mean that he gets to do whatever he wants. That is uh, that triggers certain statutory uh, authorities under thousands of statutes that have certain provisions that say when there's a national emergency, Congress has already passed this legislation. But in those cases, the president then gets to do the following things. Uh, and in the case of the pandemic, we've seen the activation of the Defense Production Act, for example. Now, contrary to uh, some uh, belief or some questions that I've gotten, this doesn't mean that the president can seize the means of production and force factories to turn out uh, ventilators. Uh, this is not Harry Truman in 1952 seizing the steel mills for the Korean War, which the Supreme Court found was unconstitutional. Instead, it's really tweaks government contract uh, regulations. And so, for example, part of the Defense uh, Production Act uh, sets priorities and allocations for contracts. Uh, the president can go to a factory that's already producing things like ventilators, like GM has been doing, and say, prioritize our contracts over whatever other contracts uh, you may have. And the Defense Production Act has been used many times. The, typically, it's the Pentagon, the Defense Department, uh, that uses it to make sure that its materiel uh, is and has been uh, produced. Uh, there's another part of the Defense Production Act that uh, gives grants and loans to expand manufacturing capacity that wasn't otherwise there. And there's another part of it that uh, allows voluntary arrangements and no bid contracts, suspends certain types of regulations that are normally in place uh, for government contracts. So all these technicalities triggered by uh, the president's declaration that, that we're in an emergency and we're applying this. There's also the Public Health Service Act, which allows the Surgeon General and the Secretary of Health and Human Services to take certain steps. Again, these are statutory steps that Congress has already legislated, and when there's an emergency, 
the executive branch uh, does this. Now, the rest is pretty much left to the states. That is, people ask, can, can Donald Trump shut down the entire country? Well, you know, what exactly does that mean? You know, the reason that we've seen governors and mayors issue shelter-in-place orders rather than something coming from the White House is because the White House doesn't have that particular power. Again, the federal government has the power to regulate interstate commerce. So that means the president could uh, shut down airports and ports and possibly even the interstate system, at least uh, uh, at crossings uh, between states. And that's where the talk of quarantine around the tri-state area comes in. This is not locking down and forcing all businesses in a given state or what have you to close down. It's instead trying to prevent travel, trying to prevent spread that way, kind of an interstate version of the international travel ban uh, that was put in place to try to contain uh, the virus's spread. And so everything else uh, goes to the states who have, unlike the federal government, have a general police power to govern for the health, safety, and welfare of their populace. And this is something that goes back to time immemorial. This is not a modern development. It's not something new with uh, the United States Constitution. Um, going back to ancient times, the, the one of the foundational parts of government power is to protect against, well, uh, foreign invasion, an army, uh, or pandemic. Uh, and so there's quarantine law going back to the Romans uh, and, uh, and the Greeks. States also have statutory emergency powers as well. But all of these shelter-in-place orders come from the police power, which uh, might differ state to state based on the state constitution. But generally, it's something that any sovereign has. Um, but uh, as I said, the U.S. Constitution does not give uh, the federal government that kind of general power. So um, I'm happy to take uh, further questions uh, as they come up. Our, you, you can type them in uh, as you're where you're watching this. Also uh, on Twitter or Facebook, you can, you can send uh, questions to us, hashtag Cato SCOTUS, S-C-O-T-U-S. Uh, and now I will turn it over to my colleague, Walter Olson, who will get more into uh, state powers and what different states have done uh, in terms of their legal response to the pandemic. Well, thank you, Ilya. Libertarians especially are often startled and amazed to find how much government power there is during a pandemic. Can the mayor order your restaurant to close? Can the governor of Michigan, as she just did, tell you that you can't visit a member of your own family, you can't drive to their house? Uh, can they uh, blockade you on the roads into Rhode Island and uh, ask for uh, evidence of where, whether you've just been in New York as uh, Rhode Island Governor Gina Raimondo recently did. And the answer is that, uh, surprising or not, these are powers that have been asserted by local and state government since and long before the American Constitution. And whether you want to ask uh, what did the founders think about this or whether you want to ask what would courts say if you sued over this, and those are two very good questions to ask about constitutional law at any point. Uh, the answer for most of those things will be uh, yes, the founders knew about it and 
uh, were resigned to it, if you want to use that verb, uh, but knew it would go on and did not see it as unconstitutional. And likewise, the courts, not just the modern courts, which have changed so much of the way they handle the constitution, but also the courts in the early days uh, would have been very deferential, not in every single case, but in most cases would have deferred to the emergency powers needed to handle an immediate epidemic. Now, as soon as this started, I looked up, I knew that Alexander Hamilton and his wife Eliza, uh, after they recovered from the yellow fever in Philadelphia, um, and that was, of course, an outbreak that occurred soon after the adoption of the American Constitution, the US uh, Capitol was there, uh, devastated the ability to run the government because the clerks fled town and the papers were locked up. So they arrived in Albany, where her family was from, and Albany stopped them and said, uh, you've got to stay in quarantine at her family's mansion for weeks before we will let you mix with the people in the city. Um, he didn't sue because he knew he couldn't sue. That was the way the law was. That was the way the Constitution was. Since then, you can go over what courts have done. I can't claim to be the master of all that information, but uh, our colleague Ilya Soman from George Mason Law uh, recently wrote that uh, looking in the takings area, that is what happens when the government requisitions a building uh, or uh, in, uh, in requisition supplies, that he found no cases in the Spanish flu pandemic, which everyone is looking to uh, for guidance as to what the government could do. He found no cases where the, the courts would actually stop the thing. Some cases where the courts required compensation, so that's something at least. But again, you get back to the rule that while the emergency is happening, the courts will do very little to keep the government from coercing you. Afterward, we hope, and it has been true historically, your rights spring back, uh, precious rights, such as rights of worship and rights of assembly in the First Amendment, uh, rights to speedy trial, uh, almost every uh, single component of the Bill of Rights uh, winds up facing a problem during a pandemic. But afterward, the rule is supposed to be, we get them all back. Trevor, on to you. It is a very interesting time, of course, uh, it can't be said enough. Uh, <clears throat> I'd like to start by just some remarks on sort of libertarianism and liberalism and the civil liberties in strange times like this. Uh, some people have talked about, you know, libertarianism can't deal with the pandemic and these restrictions, but I think it's interesting to note that any liberal political philosophy that puts individual rights, individual speech, movement, those kind of things, uh, as a as a prominent place in the philosophy is going to have a problem dealing with extraordinary things like pandemics. Uh, and also, of course, governing philosophies are not crafted for extraordinary times. They're crafted for normal times uh, where we say this is what people normally do and that's our theories of government. But that being said, I think that libertarians have things to say. Ilya kind of mentioned some of the things about blocks over supplies, but of course we have some things to say about the civil liberties and Wally is correct and, and what Ilya said is, is mostly accurate that uh, the deference here is, is pretty high uh, in terms of how much deference they get. Uh, this is the core of the police power, the health, safety, welfare, and morals. And you see in the Supreme Court jurisprudence going back to even cases like Gibbons v. Ogden. Uh, if you remember, if you, if you had con law, one of the first cases you probably read, wherein Chief Justice John Marshall rules that New Jersey and New York, New York can't have a licensing system, exclusive monopoly on ferries going between New Jersey and New York. But in that opinion, uh, Justice Marshall, Chief Justice Marshall actually says that this would not apply in areas of quarantine. 
uh, and that comes up in a lot of different opinions. There are some opinions that deal with the quarantining of ships uh, and whether or not it's a violation of either the tonnage clause, which is a, a real uh, deep cut of the Constitution, or commerce. And some cases they ruled that it is a violation, but they said if they did this for quarantine purposes, it would not be a violation. Um, I'd like to talk uh, about one case actually that I commend to you. Uh, there's a case uh, that I've discovered in this research where we're researching things that many of us have never looked too much into. Uh, and you find interesting little, little uh, historical cases. There's a case called Juho v. Williamson that came out of California in 1900, and it dealt with a quarantine of a defined set of city blocks in San Francisco. Uh, in that case, the, it was challenged because the claim was that it was only being enforced against Chinese people uh, and that the uh, bubonic plague, which is what the quarantine was for, was not actually prevalent. It wasn't actually going on. And the judge in that case looked very closely at these claims and actually had testimony from a doctor who said there were no cases of bubonic plague in this area, and then testimony about how it was being only applied to Chinese people, and he actually struck it down uh, in a very interesting opinion, where so the deference is an absolute. In the words of that opinion, it says, I follow, it follows from the remarks that I have made that this quarantine cannot be continued by reason of the fact that it is unreasonable, unjust, and oppressive, and therefore contrary to the laws limiting the police powers of the state and municipality in such matters. Uh, so you have some interesting things there. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the local restrictions on travel. Um, we've heard stories, uh, we, maybe something has happened to you where cops are uh, breaking up people in parks or stopping them when they are driving their car and asking them where they're going. Uh, and this question of whether or not that is okay under the Fourth Amendment. This one I think is a little bit more difficult because the Fourth Amendment requires uh, probable cause or in a car situation, reasonable suspicion to stop someone in their car. If you look at most of these orders on the municipality level, I live in Arlington, Virginia, and, and we're on a lockdown, but there are numerous exceptions for why you can leave your house. Uh, given all of those exceptions, I would, I would argue that the sort of random stopping of a car on the suspicion that they're not doing one of the exceptions and are not going to get groceries or check up on a loved one or do something, go to the doctor, that they're not doing that just because they're in their car would actually violate the Fourth Amendment uh, because of the nature of the authorizing statute. Now, I wouldn't suggest or, or sort of predict that you might win that case. And oddly enough, we probably won't get cases that come out of those because usually we get Fourth Amendment cases say in a car, when they stop someone, possibly legally, and then they find drugs. Uh, so presuming that, that you know, maybe people will be traveling with drugs in these situations, but if they don't end up finding something else that then they can challenge the search itself, we might see some of those cases, but it would take that kind of situation. Uh, it is always concerning, I think, in a variety of ways when we give cops a lot of discretionary power to interfere with people and that they can use that in their own way and it's very hard to second guess them. So I would advise you to sort of talk back to cops, but uh, but uh, many of these cops are enforcing orders uh, that, on, that are contrary to their face. Uh, uh, so when you have a couple who live together walking through a park and then saying they have to stay six feet apart, uh, this is probably problematic also. Uh, again, I wouldn't challenge the cop in that situation. Uh, but those are the kind of things that we're looking at. And we just It's kind of concerning when we have more interactions with cops, which means we could have more situations for more strict, uh, strong violations of civil liberties like violence uh, on the part. 
I also think it's important to look forward a little bit and ask questions. And these are, again, a developing situation, but in terms of ending the lockdown, different ways that we could possibly get out of this, we might have to be talking about things like uh, contact tracing, possibly tracking through your cell phone. And that is coming right into an area of law that is extremely in high development and changing all the time because we deal with things like the third party doctrine, which is when your cell phone has information about your location, for example, and whether or not the police need a warrant to access that. In a case called Carpenter from two years ago, they said that they did need a warrant, but it's unclear in what situations that applies. How long do you have to be tracking them? What sort of information are you getting? Uh, and lower courts have struggled applying this, and we will probably see some of this happen again when it comes to this sort of tracking with the uh, cell phones. Uh, in terms of contact tracing, this becomes even more difficult because now we're looking at, at your information, sort of compelling third parties uh, to get information about everyone that you've come in contact with. And this looks much more like kind of the NSA FISA warrant stuff that we've seen that uh, was, was exposed by Edward Snowden, that they're using the single call of a caller to get information on every single person that that caller interacted with. And so this is another one that we should have concerns, but understand that this kind of technology could help us get out of lockdown too. So those are the trade-offs uh, that we're gonna inevitably have to endure. Uh, a few words about churches. Um, it's unfortunate for, for people of faith that their churches have been closed, but I think uh, it would be just justified, it would be upheld by a court. And I think it's important to realize how much churches and things like this have been the source of point source outbreaks that have created large uh, situations of many cases of coronavirus because people did go to church. So I advise you to think about that too and come with other ways of, of practicing your faith. Uh, they, these would be upheld, I think, and they don't violate uh, the First Amendment because again, this is exceptional times. And the most important thing, as Wally said, is that it goes back uh, once we get out of this situation. Uh, finally, a few words about guns. Uh, we've had some action on either closing down gun stores uh, and uh, declaring them to be non-essential businesses. That has been an interesting development because some states have been challenged in this, uh, such as Pennsylvania, and reversed those decisions and said, we're going to say that guns are essential businesses. Now, the gun store would have to comply with any social distancing rules or number of people in the store, just like every other store. But under a Second Amendment reading, shutting down gun stores would almost assuredly violate the decision in Heller v. United States and then in McDonald v. City of Chicago, because it's an imposition that is uh, drastic. It's not even, it's not a ban, it's a complete ban on the ability of people to exercise their Second Amendment rights uh, at a time when it might be more important to exercise your Second Amendment rights or to feel like you need to protect yourself. Uh, we've seen gun purchases skyrocket. Uh, the week of March 16th was the most background checks ever under the, the National Instant Criminal Background Check System in a given week. Uh, and so if people feel like they need a gun, uh, that's that's fine, that's your right, and shutting those down. Now we have some problems in New Jersey, which rescinded its order. The sheriff of Los Angeles rescinded his order uh, after challenges, uh, and we should see some of that, I think, play out for the better. Uh, we've had some cases in the past on taking away gun stores in emergencies. There's a case called Bateman out of North Carolina. Uh, not many in terms of as a, it's an as applied challenge, so we don't know what they can do. But de but definitely, I would say that that the Second Amendment stands pretty strong on saying that even in times of emergencies, or arguably, especially in times of emergencies, uh, you cannot take away Second Amendment rights. 
Uh, with that, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it open for questions and kick it back over to Ilya. Yeah, Be before we open it for questions, just one thing that occurred to me, and I know Wally wants to jump in, as you were talking about both gun stores and churches and people come up with different examples of things that are very important to them. Imagine bloggers getting together and wanting to blog about this or uh, protesters for that matter. Uh, well, those could be shut down because it's a large group of people violating social distancing. I think the, the, the point is that uh, the rules have to be applied equally, evenly, and not arbitrarily. Uh, that is, the reason that you can't go to church isn't because uh, to be to, for that order to be valid, uh, is because all large gatherings uh, are stopped. Now, if, if a governor said churches are not okay, but yoga studios are okay, that would be a problem. It's a matter of, of applying these rules uh, in to borrow from a different area of law in kind of a congruent and proportional manner. Uh, such that uh, it's applied evenly and also addresses the problem. In, in a hurricane, you might want to evacuate the coast. In a pandemic, you wouldn't really evacuate the coast, but you'd practice uh, social distancing. Wally. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to add a little more detail on the gun store example because I think it is more complicated. In Pennsylvania, uh, it went to that state's Supreme Court, which I believe ruled by majority that the state had the police power authority to close it during the pandemic, whereupon the governor nonetheless retreated, recognizing that um, in this case, allowing them to open by appointment with customers was going to be safe enough for social distancing purposes. So the political system wound up respecting the rights involved, although the courts at least in Pennsylvania, did not. Eugene Volokh, uh, at his great blog, has been tracking cases of this sort from around the country. And it leads us directly into the question of pretext and uh, equality of application, because courts, even when they are most deferential, uh, will keep an eye out for pretext. And we know from the gun area that there are groups that want to seize on this as a pretext to get policies that they could not have obtained otherwise. And we know from the uh, uh, case of bubonic plague in San Francisco and from some others that courts, uh, especially um, if the nature of the pretext is that it wasn't an emergency in the first place, then you get back a lot of judicial oversight because they realized that if they allowed the government to get away with claiming an, an, as an emergency something that wasn't even an emergency, then the government takes all the cards into its own hands and the courts are um, uh, stripped of their oversight role. So it's going to be that set of cases where there wasn't even an emergency going on or it really ended. Uh, I think we're going to see some of the first judicial relief. Yeah, all right, let's take some questions from the audience here. Um, Sandra Rupp from Twitter asks uh, two somewhat related questions. How do you define an essential business and are governors allowed to lock down healthy U.S. citizens? Uh, on the second question, uh, it depends, again, if, you know, courts, if, if we're dealing with this in, in court, courts are very deferential in a time of emergency. If uh, kind of the, the best knowledge is that to, to prevent the spread of, uh, of this disease, which is deadly, uh, then is, is to uh, order shelter in place, then I think uh, courts would uphold, uphold certain orders. Now, some examples that Trevor gave do give questions. If, uh, if a, a police officer stops someone just reading in the park, not, not bothering anybody, or a couple just walking along. Uh, I'm not sure whether that, you know, kind of the spirit of the order or 
whether you can enforce, you know, you can't go out for any reason, even to go to the grocery store, whether that sort of thing would be upheld. It's kind of a, a constitutional smell test. I'll, I'll leave to Wally the question about essential business because different states have done it in different ways. Yeah, first on essential business, that's the kind of question where courts are going to be maximally deferential. They realize that it's a judgment call. They realize that what is essential may be different in a rural state from uh, an urban state. Uh, you are going to see maximum judicial deference. And I would not advise people to sue over essential versus unessential unless you've got some other constitutional um, uh, pin to hang your hat on, or unless you've got something wrong with the state statute that you can go after, because uh, courts are basically going to let the, uh, the, the the city or state have their way. Likewise, on the, wait a minute, I'm healthy, uh, they have no right to order me around. Uh, again, that's not the way courts have seen it. It's not the way uh, the founders' generation saw it. The, those quarantines in the early American Republic very much locked down the well and not just the sick. Uh, that idea has gotten around in the past week, oh, wait a minute, they've only locked down the sick in the past. No, uh, go read the history and you won't be quite as optimistic about that. Well, and I think that um, it's important to note, as Ilya pointed out, and as with the bubonic plague case too, we need to put, we, we can push back and when the, this will become more prominent, I say into the summer. So whether or not a given city might have have had the stay shelter in place order for too long, for example. Uh, we, as we learn more about the disease, you can challenge things with more facts. Uh, so we, you know, we know about asymptomatic carriers, but maybe we'll learn that they're not, you know, they're only five days after testing or something that we have knowledge of. So then someone can go to a court and say, you know, here's the scientific data. I'm not contagious. I'm also immune. And they still have me locked down. Uh, and then that's a better way to challenge. But that's the real problem with this time of ignorance, that we don't know enough about who has it uh, and how even how it transmits, how long it can go uh, to make those claims to court. So in those situations, they're going to be even more deferential to to the legislators. And, it, it, and to compare it to something like Ebola, like uh, there were cases of quarantining a few people in 2014 about Ebola, and that would be a little bit different because Ebola is not transmitted through the air. Uh, so you would have the nature of the disease itself would change the kind of things that they get deference on or allowed to do to do to you. All right, let's move to another question. And again, uh, feel free to submit more and uh, tweet at us, hashtag Cato SCOTUS. Uh, Steve Dewey asks, does the president have any legal or constitutional authority to require individual states to end their lockdowns and reopen their respective state economies? Kind of the flip side of whether the president has any authority to uh, force lockdowns uh, or shelter in place orders. And the answer to that is no. Uh, this is why uh, governors have been issuing these orders. Uh, this is why you might have read, I think there are five or six states that still do not have shelter in place orders. And I think this is while you might want to talk about the the beauty of federalism that the the type of order that's that's valid in manhattan and good policy might not be the same in in wyoming or or what have you but anyway uh this is why mark meadows the new chief of staff has been calling these governors trying to urge them to to do more that the president cannot uh, do that directly yeah it's part of the constitutional structure that 
of the federal government, and that includes both Congress and the president, can't just give orders to states. Now, they can do some things that restrain states' discretion. They can certainly use funding strings. They can use the supremacy of federal law. Uh, and this isn't quite symmetrical because uh, there might be constitutionally enacted laws that allow the, the federal government to shut down things, but not to, to reopen them. Uh, if you see what I mean, uh, reopening them requires giving states an order uh, to change their policy. That's what the Constitution won't allow. Closing things down, as the federal government under the commerce power has powers to close down ports and uh, airports and other things. Yes, it might get that from the commerce power, but the, neither the commerce power nor the other sources of federal power uh, allow the feds to turn the states into their little deputies. Uh, and that has served us very well as far as preserving decentralization and preserving a variety of approaches. Um, this is no time to end that. All right, let's take another question. Um, all right, what would be the most extreme measures the federal government could constitutionally take in such a situation? Put troops on state borders to halt interstate trade? Um, well, it, it, it really depends on, again, the kind of the, the response has to be congruent and proportional to the problem. So. Uh, when, when the president talked about quarantining the tri-state area, uh, that again was not lockdown orders, but conceivably could uh, put uh, the National Guard on the border, prevent interstate travel. Uh, now, there's something called the Posse Comitatus Act, which prevents the military from acting in a police capacity. So unclear how much, whether this would be anything more than a, than a show of force, uh, a signaling measure, the, 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 the National Guard probably would not be arresting people, but it's... Uh, it's an unusual situation. Um, uh, you know, it, it just depends on the seriousness of the situation. And, and again, courts uh, have been deferential. Already, governors ordering shelter in place, that's pretty extreme. We really, we haven't had that. So uh, I don't know, there, there's not much more extreme that, that you could get. Um, let's see. Bridget Novak from Facebook asks, my question is private gatherings of family, say for Easter dinner. In Ohio, it's unclear in the state order. Some interpret as no more than 10 people. Some say not allowed. Is a private gathering of family and friends permitted if it's the individual's choice to attend? Who wants to take that? I, I, I'll take this one. Um, sure. that, that's getting into the, into the difficult area uh, where we're seeing so actions of take crack, cr cracking down on small groups. Uh, so we already said like there's a reason for churches to you know or large groups and how many how much they can have point source outbreaks there. I think we're getting you know pretty close when we're having small groups that are being cracked down on. Um, again, I wouldn't want to challenge this in court. Uh, I would much prefer the political arena to say, you know getting together with your family for Easter uh, for under 10 people or something is, is something that we'd like to do. Um, I probably wouldn't encourage doing that either, uh, but if you could do a Zoom meal, which I know is not the same, that would be better. Uh, so at some point, I mean, again, as Leah said, it all depends on the facts on the ground. If we learn, if we imagine an even more, you know, a more fatal and virulent disease than this one is, and say, you know, that it's hyper, it's hyper contagious and it goes very quickly and it kills 50% of people. See, that's the kind of analysis. So then would you be able to stop 
family gatherings of this sort um, is the question. And that's the reason why this is different than the flu, right? That's the reason why, because the flu is not like that. We have deaths for flu every year, but a lot of people will say, oh, well, this is just like the flu. Uh, no, it's not just like the flu. So, the, so you kind of analyze these things accordingly. Uh, but I would say, with the, what we know about this disease, if we start having rules that come in that start prohibiting, you know, having two people get, gathering together, uh, that might be going a little bit too far. But again, I wouldn't challenge it. Yeah, I would say yeah, on the Ohio question. Yeah, uh, on the Ohio question, it's going to depend on. Uh, Ohio details, uh, which we can't answer from a constitutional standpoint. Uh, more broadly, even as the role of the courts has shrunk to almost nothing as far as uh, second-guessing government uh, decisions, uh, one ray of hope is that the political process has sometimes gotten through. We mentioned uh, on gun shops that uh, Pennsylvania listened. I mentioned in my Wall Street Journal piece last week that when Pennsylvania uh, instituted drastic draconian measures such as closing laundromats, closing um, rest stops on the, the Pennsylvania Turnpike, it heard within a day, uh, wait a minute, emergency workers need those things. Uh, emergency uh, shipments need those rest stops and it reversed itself and you see that uh, the states are closer to the people, and by and large, I think they have a better record of listening and adjusting course. Another example from Michigan, Michigan State Police interpreted the governor's lockdown order as saying you couldn't go out on a lake in your pleasure boat by yourself or with your spouse. Now, I'm from Michigan, so I know exactly how that hit Michiganders. <laughs> and within that same day, the governor had reversed the police, said, no, this is Michigan. You get to use your boat. <laughs> and I hear the trees are the right height there too, Wally. <laughs> um, all right, uh, Twyla Brace, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, on Twitter asks, talk about the power of state health departments to force people to comply with examination, testing, treatment, and vaccination. Now, of course, um, mandatory vaccination is a uh, point of controversy among uh, uh, libertarians. Uh, uh, my view is that if you're using public services or interacting with civilization, it's at that point that the government uh, gets certain authority uh, over you because uh, to, to put it back to political theory 101, you know, my, I, I am free to swing my fists around as much as I want in my own home when I'm not hitting anybody. But if I start going onto a busy street doing that, uh, then that becomes a, a problem. And so, so similarly, uh, similarly here, uh, Trevor, uh, I think you want to expand on that. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is getting to some, you know, difficult questions where we have cases um, uh, with, with bodily invasion is always a different question. Uh, we have cases such as um, the forced stomach pumping case at Rifkin, California, uh, where this comes a problem and different kind of cavity searches. I, I, I think that I'd have to know the details. You asked this question about forced examinations. These kind of things are a much better claim. Uh, and then the kind of quarantine ones, because they are in bodily invasion. Now, in the Jacobson case, uh, which is the vaccine case, which in the Supreme Court upheld mandatory vaccinations, and that one is, has stood for a lot of things, and it was cited in the infamous case of Buck v. Bell, uh, which is when they forcibly sterilized a woman named Carrie Buck. Uh, but we haven't ever had that really challenged further. Uh, this is not about anti-vaxxing at all. I'm extremely pro-vaccine, but... Uh, in the Jacobson case, the vaccine itself was actually pretty dangerous. It was a pretty bad vaccine. And the secondary question of, of how much, how can the government make you get any vaccine? 
uh, there's never actually been answered. Like, so it's a H HPV or get to get a vaccine for a very unlikely disease, go you know, get a vaccine for say malaria, which I don't think there's a vaccine for, but uh, can it make you get a vaccine for any disease whatsoever that it claims? And that is still undecided. And I would say uh, generally no, if there's no compelling interest because the disease isn't prevalent or isn't that fatal, then they can't just make you get a vaccine. Uh, now that doesn't answer about now, because of course coronavirus is here, uh, but those are still un unanswered legal questions. And if I could jump in, um, it's funny because for 20 years I have been criticizing public health departments for overreaching in various areas, especially when they move beyond communicable disease. And uh, in New York, under Mayor Bloomberg in particular, you had assertions of public health, uh, health department interest in uh, how much soda you could drink, uh, in gun control, in uh, all sorts of areas, uh, you know, having uh, too much salty snacks. And we tried to argue again and again that the uh, unusual power over our lives that had been admitted on the premise that they were going after communicable disease, which could spread uh, from coughing on someone or from close contact uh, is totally inappropriate when you move to the nanny state objectives of pr protecting us from our own choices. Now, somewhere in between on there, there are interesting cases from early in the 20th century uh, of venereal disease. Uh, venereal disease is not a rapid fire clip, clip, clip thing like measles that can spread through a whole community almost before you know it, unless you've got a very lively community going on. Uh, instead, it is something where most of the links in the chain are voluntary by someone's decision to uh, sleep with someone. Not entirely because one of the things that shaped the de debate over venereal disease and public health powers a century ago is the fact that it would then be transmitted to a spouse who had no idea that she or he was going to get it. But most venereal disease transmittance has uh, a voluntary act of uh, risk taking uh, as, as its premise. Uh, and so you wind up with governments asserting powers that uh, we now in retrospect realize uh, may have gone too far. For example, to round up what they saw as loose women and simply expel them from the community without even any pretense that they were uh, curing anyone's disease by doing so. Uh, governments were claiming all sorts of powers Based and, and again, this gets back to what we talked about judicial review. Uh, judges, I think, uh, do and ought to apply different scrutiny over fast dangers than over slow dangers. And the slower the danger, symbolized by the big gulp that Mayor Bloomberg wanted to ban, slow dangers need more judicial scrutiny and by and large get them. All right. Um... Regarding swinging one's arms around in the street, why can't the government make rules forcing Americans to stop smoking, overeating, because our obesity rates are off the charts and this affects all of us financially? Uh, and I would say this is a, a, a good reason to resist uh, nationalization of healthcare, because indeed, if we're all paying for everyone's healthcare, then it uh, we saw this in the Obamacare debate. Uh, why not make everyone at least buy, if not eat broccoli, because it's all uh, part of making everyone health healthier and therefore reduce uh, costs. I mean, I think it's several steps removed from
from uh, uh, from mandatory uh, uh, vaccinations because there it's uh, you're directly costing other people's health, not uh, uh, not just a, a, a taxpayer uh, a burden. And Trevor, you have something on this. Well, I think the only analogy in smoking could possibly be the secondhand smoke, uh, which is to the fist, uh, the swinging your fist uh, in terms of uh, hurting yourself with cigarettes. I mean, actually smoking people who smoke under most studies, we know people who smoke cost even national healthcare systems uh, less money because they tend to die earlier. Uh, but, uh, but on the question of, you know, well, if vaccine, if the question is if vaccines, therefore, why not obesity? I think, it, again, I think it's not even in the same category because obesity is not transmitted. Uh, smoking itself is not transmitted except through secondhand smoke. Uh, and of course, that's a slippery slope that no one should want to go down uh, because I guarantee there's something that, that you do uh, that is unhealthy, that uh, could be, the, the tables could be turned on you, uh, and then it could be, a, that force could be applied to you. Yeah. If, Go ahead, um, there, You could write in um, uh, Eugene Volokh, who I mentioned before, as well as Keith Whittington, have written on uh, this um, question of what should libertarians think in the first place of uh, the um, act of going out in public when you don't know whether you're contagious or not, should that be seen as an aggression, as a line crossing? Libertarians think a lot about line crossing. Um, where does paternalism fit in? Because clearly there is a mix of motives, as it were. Uh, some of the desire for di uh, uh, distancing uh, uh, is an attempt to save us from our own choices. Another big part of it, and I would say majority in many cases, is a desire to protect not the person who was trying to take, who was willing to take the risk, but rather other people who uh, did not choose to take that risk and yet are going to fall ill. Um, as a libertarian, I'm um, very suspicious of paternalism and want to push it back. I don't think that by and large the government should be entitled to make those decisions about risks that fall on ourselves, whether it be smoking uh, or many, many other risks. Uh, but again, uh, I, as a classical liberal, I see the point uh, if the public square becomes a bunch of um, lethal, unguided missiles, well-meaning, because people are not trying to spread it, they're not aware that they're contagious in many of the instances, uh, but if the public square has turned into a lethal encounter with unguided missiles, uh, perhaps the public square in that one instance uh, can be regulated. We have a question from Nathan Charpentier on Facebook who asks, what about shopping for non-essential items at grocery stores? Some states are issuing legislation that only essential items are allowed to be purchased. Now, I haven't seen those kinds of orders, let alone legislation. Uh, I would think that uh, that a court would be skeptical of that. If the items are in the stores, uh, can't stop their purchase, you're in the store already. Uh, if you're ordering them on Amazon, Amazon might be delayed or what have you in, in, in uh, delivering them. But that would be, I think, a, a pretty clear area where uh, it goes beyond uh, the bounds. Wally, what do you think? Vermont. Yeah, this is already happening in the U.S. In Vermont, I believe uh, the state has required Walmart, which of course has a large food section and some other things like uh, medicines, required Walmart to close off parts of the store that are considered discretionary purchases. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that courts would 
extremely deferential to a state like Vermont. And so even if the policy doesn't make sense, you're not going to get a court to overturn it. In Britain, where the police always seem to go further, I, I wish these were the, uh, the this was the era when the British police were known as the friendliest and, and gentlest in the world. But in Britain nowadays, the police are always going further in being uh, bossy. And so not only do you have them saying that British supermarkets are uh, selling too many inessential items and suggesting perhaps that the gourmet version of something is unnecessary, whereas the not so good tasting version of something is necessary. And uh, American governments have not gotten to that point, but they have certainly gotten to the point of distinguishing between uh, braziers and uh, cans of beans. They will let you buy the cans of beans. Britain has also, by the way, pioneered uh, the practice, which is beginning to be seen in the U.S. also, of sending drones out to uh, beauty spots in, in order to uh, either uh, warn people not to use them, or I think this is now happening in Chicago, to lecture people about not getting too close to each other as they admire the lecture view. Uh, a follow-up to that, Mitch Nem... Uh, a follow-up to that, Mitch Nemeth on Twitter asks, can non-essential business owners seek remedies from the government, state, local, federal, for forcing the closure of their business? If not, can the business owners sue if they can prove the closure led to bankruptcy? And I'll add in questions about whether it's uh, regulatory takings or uh, other such uh, uh, property rights-based concerns. If I could answer that one. Yeah, um, this is a question that uh, our friend Ilya Soman, who is a great expert on takings and regulatory takings, um, tried to address, and it's not very encouraging for uh, the many, many people who have asked that same question about, uh, isn't this a takings where the courts might order compensation? Going back over the Spanish flu cases and going back more generally, uh, his conclusion is that courts will tend to recompense under current doctrine, and, and current doctrine is not very pro-business and not very pro-property owner on takings, but they will tend to uh, compensate um, the cases where there has been a physical invasion of property. So, for example, if the governor takes over an empty convention center or takes over a university uh, gymnasium, uh, uh, in order to turn it into a field hospital, then yes, they probably have to pay for the occupation of the building. But as we know, that's not where most of the losses are being felt now. Most of the losses are being felt for businesses where the government has not stepped in and occupied the business, but has just said, you can't go on operating. By and large, under the current doctrine, and this ties in with cases like Penn Central, which we all know about at the uh, Robert A. Levy Constitutional Center, because it ties the hands of the courts uh, that might want to offer compensation for very real takings, very real shutdowns. Um, but so long as Penn Central stands as a precedent and it's not going to go away anytime soon, uh, there won't be a judicial remedy. Ilya's next question, Ilya Soma's next question is, all right, even if the courts won't order it, wouldn't there be rough justice in the, the government acknowledging, look, we are the ones who just drove this business to the edge of bankruptcy. We are the ones who just put its workforce of 25 people out of work. Don't we owe some rough justice compensation for having ruined their livelihood in order to protect other people um, who are not losing anything? That's a good question. 
Um, okay, next question from, I don't know how to pronounce this name, Knekniv Resech on Facebook. Can my governor seal the border of my state and prevent me from entering or leaving? Uh, I would say prevent you from entering, possibly. From leaving, no, that's up to the next governor over. Um, so uh, again, uh, uh, governors, uh, state authorities have police powers, which includes uh, sealing off the state to prevent uh, the spread of or the entry uh, of the virus, just like the federal government polices the international borders and can have a travel ban. A, a state governor can say, well, like we've seen, we haven't seen complete bans, but we have seen, for example, the governor of Texas, uh, uh, Greg Abbott, the governor of uh, Florida, Ron DeSantis, uh, saying anyone flying in from Florida has to go into self-quarantine, uh, flying in from New York has to go into self-quarantine for two weeks. Now, as long as that uh, is applied equally both to Texans and Floridians returning home from New York and to New Yorkers or others visiting the state, I think that's uh, allowed. But it certainly can't seal you in if you want to leave. Uh, this is not a, you know, this is not a, a Stasi police state keeping you in. <coughs> Um, Twyla Brace, a repeat questioner, all right, on Twitter asks, do states and pharmacy boards have the constitutional or emergency authority to tell doctors what they can or cannot prescribe? What about states prohibiting elective surgeries, including cancer surgery? And I'll add in another question that came in elsewhere about what about abortion bans? Because of course, these are coming in not as we're banning abortion now, just because we don't like it. This is an emergency and we can do whatever we want, but this is an elective surgery or an elective procedure. I can comment on that. Go ahead, Trevor. Um, well, so the abortion question is interesting. I meant to uh, bring that up a bit in some of my, it's very similar in many ways. A lot of doctrine around abortion and guns is a little similar. It's also a little bit culturally similar because they're both, there are a lot of single issue voters on those issues, but in both of those situations, you have to have someone manufacture or supply you the gun, the gun store or the abortion doctor, which implicates the right as the court has held for right to abortion. Um, I think that jurisprudence is of course is, uh, very underdeveloped, largely because the court doesn't like to take those cases. We have the undue burden test and the whole woman's health test. Uh, in general, to the broader question, uh, regulating the medical profession. So this is pro this is within the police powers of the states, but that doesn't mean that everything that they do to tell doctors what they can and can't do is therefore okay. I mean, if you think about all the ways that they already regulate the medical profession, say how they can prescribe opiates or whether or not they can prescribe opiates. Uh, there are already many impositions on doctors uh, that I would say even violates your right to take opiates if you want to. Um, so yes, they can, uh, but I think that there, you have to give me more specific ones. Uh, let's say the elective surgery, the cancer. Uh, I think patients could go to a court and, and if, if they had to go to a court and say, you know, I need cancer treatment and I need an, ex an exception from this rule, and they could often win those cases, but it very much, these would be what we call as applied challenges, very much depends upon the actual claim itself. Uh, and when it comes to abortion, I said, um, it's, it's probably a similar type of situation, uh, depending on the, the, how crucial the abortion is endangering the life of the mother or the infant, it's probably a similar kind of situation. On the, to me, somewhat bizarre uh, state governor orders uh, trying to control doctors' use of 
uh, hydroxychloroquine and, and its related medications. There's one additional argument that might be available to the doctors or pharmacists or patients that isn't usually available in many of these other cases, which is that there's a comprehensive federal scheme of regulating uh, drugs and their availability. And you could argue that the states were doing something at war with that comprehensive federal scheme. Uh, whether that argument is a winner, I don't know or not, because um, most of these state assertions of emergency powers are um, do get deference and the states might offer arguments about we're not trying to keep it from being used, we're trying to reserve it for this and that category of patient who needs it in normal times. I don't know how that would fare in court, but at least it's one more argument uh, for those who might challenge that. Question from JJ. As South Korea's successful management of the coronavirus shows, extensive surveillance, that is location tracking and public disclosure, may be a way to control the outbreak. How would you see the feasibility of such a measure in the constitutional context? Um, I'll take. I know. I know our colleagues. Our colleagues, uh, Pat Eddington, Julian Sanchez, and Matt Feeney, have been uh, writing about this and and watch this space for events and and writings in more depth on that regard. Trevor, have you looked at that at all? Yes, um, it, it's one of these difficult questions. I mean, there's there's a trade-off here, where because we don't know enough about tracing and tracking and who has it. We've had to result to the shotgun approach of violating, or you know, in this situation, constraining a bunch of people's civil liberties because we, we lack the knowledge. And possibly the only way to get out of that is to actually further, like have heightened restrictions on fewer people's civil liberties so the rest of us don't have to be treated as if we're essentially presumptively sick. So that's like the real difficulty there. Um, as I said in my opening remarks, I do, predict that there will be a there will be a move an attempt to use this kind of location tracking via your cell phone i mean i know for example taiwan did this very stringently and taiwan on some level has probably done the best of almost of any country in the world i think they only have six deaths at this point uh, that may be outdated that, that changes every day of course but uh there there was a friend of mine in taiwan uh, he was on quarantine and they were using location tracking for his phone and his phone ran out of batteries and within 10 minutes the cops were at his door because they thought that he had he had turned off his phone or done something so those can be concerning so it's absolutely feasible to do it uh, but we need to be very concerned about how that information is used, about privacy, about who it's being used against, uh, and all this sort of tracking issues, uh, which is still a very live issue. And the, but there are some real Fourth Amendment concerns there, uh, and we also need to make sure that they get rid of the power once they take it in, which might be the hardest one, the hardest thing at all of, of all. And if I could jump in, yeah, um, there are those disturbing precedents in uh, East Asia about. The forced app, you know, where the you know you get sick, they require you to put an app on your phone, which then does a lot of that uh, measurement. But someone pointed out uh, in a couple of recent articles that uh, the U.S. actually, in some ways, may do better because of our setup of um, uh, the uh, the way data works on uh, the internet. Because even though we have stronger constitutional protections against what the government can do uh, without asking us. Uh, America has also followed a path where we allow people to contract with the various uh, tech companies to um, 
let them use our data. As we know, they use it for an awful lot of things and people often opt into the factory settings and opt into the terms of service, which allow for lots and lots and lots of data tracking. Now Europe has blocked that often by enacting laws saying, even if the customer agrees, you can't collect certain types of things, you, you have to get much more explicit consent. And as a result, Europe is now finding that it can't use a lot of locational data that is free to be uh, shared by American tech companies about uh, patterns of interaction. Uh, and again, this is not because the government has required this of the tech companies, it's simply because uh, consumers and tech companies have reached that by open contract. America has wound up with a lot of private data sharing that may be an early line of warning, uh, may be an early way of protecting people. Um, so again, uh, we treasure the US Constitution. We realize, however, that it constrains what the government can do. And sometimes other actors can use information well, uh, uh, Wally, you might uh, be pleased to hear that Don Murphy on Facebook says that Walter Olson is the best dressed man on Zoom. So there you go. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, we will cut this feed before each of us stands up from our, uh, from our desks here. Uh, Question from Jeremy, an interesting one. What about the right to fish protected since Magna Carta? Maryland has prohibited catch and release fishing. Virginia, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania are allowing it, given that much fishing happens alone. And uh, I guess I'll add the hypothetical that, you know, assuming people are fishing uh, alone or at least six feet apart or whatever the proper social distancing is, this does not seem appropriately tailored. You know, I, I'd say this goes back to what uh, what Trevor was saying about as applied challenges. Now, you're not probably going to get a court to rule on it necessarily right now, but I do think that some of these things uh, do need to be tailored. And yeah, if you're alone reading in a park or fishing on a stream and completely observing, you know, erring on the side of caution, not six feet, but 20 feet away from from whoever, uh, I think that uh, well, first of all, I would question uh, the, the the judgment of the law enforcement officer who. Uh, tries to stop you, for that matter, approaching you, thereby violating social distancing uh, or knocking on your door, for that matter, of your car door and forcing you to roll down the window and violating social distancing probably does more harm than whatever you're doing in that isolated situation. But probably a court's not going to, you know, the case isn't going to get to the court fast enough to really rule on it. Um Unless anyone has anything more on that, I'll move on to Scott Mandel has an interesting question on Facebook. Says, uh, L.A. Mayor Garcetti has ordered all parks to close this Sunday to prevent people coming to the park for Easter. Parks will, however, be open Saturday and Monday. Is this singling out a religious holiday, especially since every day is a holiday due to businesses being closed anyway? Who wants to take that? Uh, I give I give it a shot. Um, I think uh, I would say if you took some of the religious uh, religious cases dealing with say uh, nativity scenes and, and say the crosses, the Bladensburg cross, those are establishment cause cases. But it depends on the nature of Easter. Uh, is Easter inherently only a religious holiday? Because uh, the court has said that Christmas has you know so many secular aims, um, and the question of whether or not you know people get together who aren't religious uh, just for Easter on Sunday. Uh, and have meals and go to parks and things like this. 
Uh, again, uh, like we've been saying, he's likely to be upheld on this question uh, to say that I think it's more likely on this day because it is a holiday that people are going to go. So I'm, I'm not singling out a religion. I'm singling out the behavior of congregating in parks. Uh, so they're not, they're not banning belief or anything. Uh, but but you could imagine a situation uh, where so, you know someone did pretextually pass such a ban uh, for this. It's a little bit silly, uh, of course, because like you Saturday and Monday and all these things, but uh, the, the state doesn't have to keep parks open at all. Uh, so it would be interesting to sort of compel them to keep the park open in some way. So again, uh, you could imagine a situation, but that one is likely, likely okay. All right, I think that had to be the last question. We're reaching the top of the hour. I'll clean up one item that a couple of people have asked about uh, the Defense Production Act and uh, forcing GM to manufacture ventilators. It is really more uh, modifying contractual and, and the regulations of, of government contracts. Uh, you can't, the, the president could not order some agribusiness to start producing ventilators. That's not within their purvey, but GM uh, apparently was already modifying their production lines. And so just saying, you you know, ma making this clear, I want you to make all of these and we, we take priority. And by the way, this is not slave labor. They're going to get paid the statutorily designated market approaching uh, rate uh, uh, for that. So we have to wrap it there. I'm sure there's lots of questions. Feel free to get in touch with us over Twitter or email us uh, or, or make sure to follow Cato's work, uh, both on the legal and of course, all other policy fronts, Cato.org, hashtag Cato SCOTUS. Thanks to my colleagues, Walter Olson and Trevor Burris. My name's Ilya Shapiro. Um, stay safe, everyone.